Hello and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Good morning. Thanks for joining us, guys. It is difficult, I understand, to be have things be different, but thanks for your patience and understanding. Thanks for your willingness to work with us and to continue to be faithful to the Lord. Gospel communities, I want to thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for dealing with the schedule, even the ones that were here at 745 this morning. I know that's early, but we appreciate everyone working with us. In fact, gospel communities, you guys can give each other air fives for your faithfulness. We're excited about that. If you're not in a gospel community you're here and you want to get connected, please let us know. Let one of the pastors know we want to get you guys connected to one. We're in Habakkuk 3, so you guys can turn with me there on your electronic device or your Bibles. We do not have ones to pass out, sorry. This is a great section of scripture. I hope you've been following along as we've been in Habakkuk. This is one of those, this is kind of the, the part that I was most excited to get to is this last chapter. Now, chapter three is is written drastically different than the first two chapters. The first two chapters is a lot of history and a lot of other information. This chapter three itself is poetic. It's meant to be a poem. And so it kind of comes across that way. Because of that, some of the scholars have tried to over-define it and, and maybe go a little bit further than we would with just the fact that it's poetic. And others, we can see uh, kind of where he's pulling history and some of that other stuff. But then we also have to remember that sometimes because of it's poetic, we don't know if he's just speaking about the faithfulness of what God has done in the past, if he's talking about the faithful the coming time, potentially of when the Chaldeans come and the time after that, or if he's speaking all the way beyond to the Messiah. And, and you can kind of see reference to all of those and all those working in this text. We last week started this chapter three and talked about the fact that he begins with this kind of this prayer, this idea that God is is worth praying to. He's been, he's been modeling that all the way through Habakkuk. And he comes to God and says, God, would you revive? Would you do a new work? Would you renew? Could you do something in our lives, in the lives of others around us, in the lives of those to come in my own life? And then he asked for God to be merciful. We said last week that there were kind of three massive things when in trials dealing with God when we pray, three massive things that we need to pay attention to. One of them is having a healthy awe or fear of the Lord an understanding of what God is doing. The second one was remembering that God is capable of renewing and doing revival in us and and through us and, and around us and in those that don't know Jesus, no matter the circumstances or how bleak it looks. And the last one was to remind us to have a posture of humility. If you're gonna ask for mercy, we must come to God recognizing that we need, we are in need of mercy and that he is the only one that can give it to us. And then Habakkuk kind of displays this confidence with the Lord in this situation. Again, his circumstances haven't changed. In fact, we know that because of the way that the book was written, that he's probably started to hear even more about the Chaldeans and, and their hostility and the way that they are attacking the people groups around them and are making their way to the people of Judah. So he's probably got more fear at this moment because of it, more struggles because of it. But his circumstances haven't changed. But Habakkuk changes in this text, and he goes to a song. He sings a song, which we will be singing this text together as a body next week. We have written that so we can do that. And he does it as a song because he wants people to join him in singing with him about the goodness of God and who God is and what he's doing. And so this is an incredible section of Scripture, but, but Habakkuk displays this confidence that I feel like when I look at the church today, when I look at the believers today, we don't have this same confidence that Habakkuk displays in this text. 
And it, it caused me to kind of go, well, wait a second, why, why is that? And I feel like we can actually see a couple of the reasons why Habakkuk has this incredible confidence in the middle of just ridiculous troubles and, and ridiculous difficulties. And so we're going to hopefully get that today. I'm going to read this again. It's a lot of scriptures. Chapter 3, verses 3 through 15 is where I'm going to read today. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His, his were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed, and the raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare, from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. It's going to be an interesting song, huh? This section is Habakkuk kind of having this sober and healthy fear of the judgment of God, asking for mercy. And then 3 through 15 is him coming to God and saying, here are the ways and the signs and the sing of the greatness of God. He comes up and says, look, this is the prophet knew that God's power from his work in the past. And so he counted on it in his ultimate victory in the near future. This is a kind of a hymn of praise, and the prophet speaks of so many different characteristics of God. In verse 2, we see him talking about God's power. In verse 3, glory. His verse 4, splendor. In verse 8, wrath. In verse 13, mercy. And in verse 19, grace are all celebrated, but it's done so in a poetic way with imagery that's just beautiful. There really seems to be two sections to this song, verses 3 through 7 and 8 through 15. 3 through 7 kind of talks about uh, the glory of the Lord in his coming. It's, it's a picture of him being here. 8 through 15 is kind of talking about God as the divine warrior, which we'll talk about why that's important here. His coming is described in the language of theophany. Now, that's a word that we need to understand because it's very important for Habakkuk and the people of this day to recognize that God appears. Theophany is a, is a Greek word, the noun of God and the verb to appear, and it essentially just means that God has shown up. He's, he's, he's appeared before them. And what does he do? What does Habakkuk do? He goes to the one time, one of the greatest theophanies, the one appearances of God ever, and he goes to Exodus. And he works through the Exodus story in this text. And he pulls in some other stories in Scripture. Now, what's important for us to see is that Habakkuk doesn't look at these stories as if they're hypothetical. He doesn't go back in time to talk about the things that God has done as if it was some kind of cartoon that was made into a movie. He goes back and says, this is our history. This is what God has done. The first reason why we lack confidence when it's times of trials is because we forget that this isn't just 
a nice book for us to read, but it's history. It's the truth of God. It shows God's working over and over and over throughout history. The reason why we wrestle with, with, with trials and why we lose our way and we start getting focused on the afflictions and the things that are going on, we stop and forget what God has done for his people, what God has done for his glory all through history. And Habakkuk, what does he do? He says, let's sing about the greatness of God. And he starts working through this. From his position in kind of the middle of, of Israelite history, Habakkuk looks back to God's mighty works and actions at the Exodus and then ponders the future. So he goes through the section and starts talking about different things. First, when he talks about God's name here, he doesn't use Elohim. He uses a poetic Elo, just shortened version, which we see in Deuteronomy, and we see it also in Job over 40 times. And the reason why this is important is this is a specific name that brings about a holy one that references God's power. He's singing about God's power. And he says he came from Taman in Paran. What is this, this, this language? What he's doing is Taman was designated kind of district of Edom, at this time, it was located southeast of Judah, and Taman was dominating in the sense of fertility. They had the best, most lush grounds everywhere. It was profound how fertile of ground it was. Well-watered area served as a crossroads for many important trade routes. And Paran was a mountainous area southwest of Judah. These two names together, when this is brought up, when Habakkuk says this to us, we're like, oh, it's just like, is it like Eagle Meridian? What, what's going on? No, when these are put together as ref, refer to God's coming in the past, when he gave the law and led the people of Israel through the wilderness. So when they say he's coming from Taman and Paran, they're remembering, he's taking them back. Hey, pay attention. I'm going to take you back in a second. We're going to sing about God's work through the Exodus. This is what he's doing here. He's, he's basically this passage reminded the hearers and readers of the work of God in the past and his majestic power in making a nation of the Hebrews. And so in verse 4, he talks about God shows his power at Sinai by controlling the skies with thunderous clouds and flashes of lightning. He shows kind of his presence. We see that from Exodus 19. So he's going back to what God has done there. When he talks about this light, the, the two ways that light shows up in verse 4, we, we see it in radiance and we see it also in light again. It can actually be translated horns as well. The reason why that's important is that radiance and horns brings about strength and power of God. And so he's talking about this. He's bringing him back to the imagery. He's saying, sing of the goodness of God. We've seen God, the theophany, his presence, where God appeared for us in a cloud and there's flashing lights and all this power. And it brings about his strength and power. He starts saying, come on, sing with me, guys. Remember this. He goes on and says, God is accompanied in the advance of plague and pestilence. I mean, come on, if you've watched anything, the Charleston Heston stuff, you've seen the plague and pestilence, right? We all know it. He's talking about where the Lord sent plagues and pestilence into the land of Egypt when Pharaoh refused to let his slaves go, Exodus 7 through 11. He's saying, look, God came forth before plague and pestilence. Look at how God worked in his people, his covenant people. Look what he's doing for his covenant people. Verse 6 talks about the walls of Jericho crumbling, not because of anything that the Israelites did themselves, but because they obediently followed the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol of God's presence, and stood there while God made the city tremble until it was destroyed, Joshua chapter 6. Do you see what Habakkuk's doing? He's going to his history. He's remembering the covenant that was made to Abraham and to Isaac and to, to Jacob. And he's remembering this and saying, look what God has done through history over and over again to stay true to who he is, to bring through his covenant people. Even when they were exiled, even when we were enslaved, even when we were gone, we've been celebrating on repeat at this point for many years the Exodus Passover meal. 
It also talks about, in verse 6, the, the idea of, of kind of earthquake and fearful trembling fell among the nations. This goes far beyond this specific event of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings, but it talks about affected hills and mountains which are eternal and everlasting. We see that in Scripture. So when hills and mountains are affected, it's showing the everlasting that are being disturbed by what? By God, who is truly permanent and everlasting. This verse moves into a cosmic kind of eschatological aspects of God's coming. It moves from a unique experience of God when he brought his people out of Egypt to a declaration about God's character, the way he is for all time and so will be again. So these first four verses, he's telling people to sing about, look what God has done. Look at at his glory. Look at how incredible he is. And then this next section, kind of 8 through 15, he moves on to this picture of God being a divine warrior. Now, why is this important? Because again, at this point, Habakkuk has heard of the Chaldeans. He's seen the strength of their might. Remember, even God kind of bragged about how much he raised them up and how their horses were faster than anyone else. Now, it was going to be incredible what they could do, that no one would believe it. He even said, watch, Habakkuk, I'm doing something that you won't believe. And so by this time, everyone was aware of the Chaldeans' strength. Everyone was aware of how ferocious of warriors they were, how no one could stand in their way. And so what does Habakkuk do when he's riddled with fear, which, by the way, we see he has immense fear after this. In verse 16, he talks about his bones quivering. He's not just flippant with this. What does he do? He goes to God as a divine warrior. He talks about how God defeated Pharaoh and goes on. In verse 8, he talks about God's combat. The imagery changes also here, for God is here presented as the divine warrior. Habakkuk's prayer of awe and a recounting of the battle he sees God carrying out in the world. The wrath is mighty, and like before, it is rooted in the story of God and his people. At the Red Sea and at the Jordan River, God split the waters in battle for his people. We see that in Exodus 13 and Joshua 3. We see God displaying how powerful he is as a warrior, swallowing up Pharaoh and his soldiers in the water instantly. Habakkuk saw the past events of the work of God. God's power and majesty were his answer to Habakkuk's needs. God's power was his answer. Having seen the awesome God who led his people from the south into the land of promise, Habakkuk saw that God could deal with the sin of Judah and with the arrogance of Babylon, all in one sitting. And then in verse 11, it talks about Joshua and the Israelites meet a five-nation coalition near Jerusalem, and the sun and moon stand still by God's hand. Why? Because God says, I want you to destroy the Amorites. I want you to take these people, and I want you to get rid of them. And so Joshua pursues them, and they're doing this. And Joshua has this moment of fear where he realizes the sun is going down, and he's not going to be able to accomplish what God had asked of him. And so what does he do? He has the audacity to say, God, would you make the sun stand still? And God does it. The longest day in history, one time. God holds it for a few more hours so that Joshua can complete what God commanded him. God also threw down huge hailstones on the enemy. It's in Joshua 10. He's showing the power of the divine warrior of God. He's resting on his strength. In verse 14, he says, You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. What is he doing here? He's saying, it's, it's weird because he kind of pauses after talking about God and then starts talking about what the people are doing. And what does he say? He says, look, Here's what's going to happen. The tools and the weapons and the strength that the Chaldeans have, I will use that against them. Now, why is Habakkuk saying that? Is that because God said something to him? Is it because in the vision God said, this is what I'm going to do? No. Habakkuk is doing what he's been doing all along. He's resting on history. He's going back to history and saying, no, wait, God has done this before. God did this with Haman. 
who was hanged on the gallows that were built for Mordecai and Esther. He did it with Daniel's enemies who were thrown into the lion's den that they had intended for Daniel. He did it with David's enemies who would fall into the pit that they had dug for him in Psalm 7. What is he saying? He's saying rather than being terrified at the strength of their enemies, God's people ought to rest confidently in the assurance that the strength of the enemy's power only displays their capacity to destroy themselves. God will allow his enemies to set his own trap. And then in verse 15, he talks about the entire victory that God will have over the waters, over everything. Why would he do that? Because if you look at Exodus chapter 15, verses 3, 11, 13, 18, kind of combined, it says this, Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed in your strength. You will guide them to your holy dwelling. The Lord will reign forever and ever. I skipped verse 13 talking about it here because I think in verse 13 we see kind of the reason to the hypothetical, the rhetorical question. Was your anger, was your wrath against the rivers, was your wrath against the sea? Why were you doing this? What are you proclaiming? And in verse 13 says it this way. It says, you went out for what? For the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. He's saying, look, you you went out. The point is that the Lord's coming cannot be understood as anger versus rivers and the seas, but as Habakkuk explains, it is to save the Lord's people. Why does God display this wrath and this anger? Because he's going to save his people, because he's about keeping his covenant, because he's following through. The first half of this verse provides the key to understanding the relationship of this chapter to the rest of the book. Rather than ignoring wrongdoings, which is what Habakkuk claimed God was doing in chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, or allowing oppression of his people to go unpunished, chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, God remembers his covenant and acts on their behalf. The whole purpose of the psalm, of the singing, and of God's theophany is to indicate the continued presence of gracious care coupled with divine judgment. Here we have God's answer to Habakkuk's complaints. His people will be saved. And he says, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with the anointed. Anointed meant God's chosen people for a particular purpose. In, in Habakkuk's day, it actually referred to God's anointed people in general and a hope for a king or deliverer in particular. So who is his anointed? It can also be in the context pushed forward, looking forward to the Messiah fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ as his anointed. God works for his anointed. Using the analogy of Habakkuk, we can see the coming deliverance of God. The same God who led the people from Israel out of bondage and slavery from the Egyptians and worked on the behalf of his people, believers from out of the bondage of sin through Jesus Christ. One scholar says it this way when he's talking about this book. Though God is very angry, furious even, Habakkuk realizes that it's because of God's love for his people. You came forth to save your people. He prays in remembrance to save your anointed, verse 13. To do so in the future, God will decimate the people he is using in Habakkuk's present and near future. They may come like a whirlwind now, gloating as they wreak havoc on the innocent and the wicked, but the Lord will come mightily and forcefully, defeating not just this nation, but all chaos everywhere. In the ancient Near East, water represented chaos. The heavy imagery in verses 8 through 15 of God showing his supremacy over the water, battling against the waters, controlling and changing them, shows God's power over not just the little battles, but the large cosmic battle of good versus evil, where God wins, period. Israel's victorious redeemer 
in the past could be counted on to save once more a repentant and submissive people. Why? Because we've seen God do it over and over and over again in history. This song was designed to be sung as a prayer, seeking both to review God's work of old first people as a means of encouraging them in relationship to the troubles that were coming. Stated another way, God is a covenant-keeping God, and His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel, is everlasting, just as His covenant with all who are in Christ Jesus by grace through faith is everlasting. If you remember, at the very beginning, we said that Habakkuk's name is a little bit hard to understand with the languages that are tied together, but most scholars believe that his name is Embracer. How powerful is it when you see someone that comes to the Lord with so much angst and so much frustration with his own people, and then with frustration with the answer that God has, coming to a spot where he's calling on everyone to sing about the goodness of who God is because of what he's seen in the history. He's embraced God for who he is. Would you do the same? So in the Bible, we have to understand something. Is this scripture truth, or is it just nice stories for us to to look at periodically? Is this just some good words to listen to every now and then, or is this really, truly the word of God? Do you want to know why Habakkuk has confidence, why he can tell people to sing? Because he doesn't look at the stories of the scripture as a hypothetical that something should be made cartoon after. He looks at it as true history. He looks at it as God's presence, his appearance before his people. His faithfulness to his covenant, his faithfulness to follow through. Do you look at scriptures this way? One of the reasons why you today lack confidence in your situations because of difficulty, because of struggles, is because you have belittled scripture unintentionally. You've taken the power of God's word out of it, and you've looked at these stories as if they don't really matter. So when you read about David and you see all the atrocious things he does, and then you recognize that God still says he's a man after God's own heart, that should encourage the snot out of us because we can say if he can do it, then we can too. But if David's just a story, he's not history, well, then that loses its power. If you see the complete victory over Egypt and what God did through the Exodus as just a story that's worth making a movie or a cartoon about and not history, well, then you don't see God having control over every single aspect of his creation. And that will bring about weakness and fear of everything else in his creation as opposed to the creator himself. When you look at the stories, the history that we have, and you see someone like Abraham or Joseph, and you see the patience that it must have taken for them when Joseph was wrongly slaved and wrongly sold in slavery, wrongfully imprisoned 13 years before God raises him up so that he could save not only his family but his people. You realize that God is victorious. When you see the promise that God says to Abraham, how many of us have felt like God has told us something and then one year later we've moved on because we never got it? 20 years before that son is born to him. See, if this is truth, if this is history, it adds confidence. We can see validity. We sit in the time period where Habakkuk didn't, where we got to see the anointed, the Holy One, the Savior, the Messiah. We get recounts of his words and his life. The reason why Habakkuk is calling people to sing is not because his circumstances are changing. It's because he trusts wholly what God has said. And there's no reason not to because he's seen it over and over and over again that God has continued to faithfully walk through the covenant people. This is why he has confidence. Are the current circumstances that you are in clouding your understanding of what he is capable of doing in your life or the lives around you? Are you losing sight of that? Do you believe that he not only wants to, but will work for his plan of restoring all things in your life today? 
Not just because he says he will, not just because I'm saying it, but because you know in the core of who you are that God is who he says he is. He has done the things that we see, and there's no one more trustworthy than him. You know, it's interesting. Of all the ways that Habakkuk looks back at God, of all the examples he chooses, he chooses quite a few different examples, but of every single one of those, none of those examples were anything that any of the people of God could take credit for. Like, none of them could say, well, you know, I was the first one to step into the water, so that's why it separated. They couldn't get any credit for that. None of them were like, well, I blew the trumpet the loudest, so that's when the, the wall really fell at Jericho. No, what does Habakkuk do? He goes back and says, look, the people had nothing to do with it. They just submitted themselves to the Lord who was doing it. You don't do that unless you believe this is true. You don't give yourself to something unless you really believe it's actually going to happen. Otherwise, you're always timidly walking back. Do you believe that God can do it. Verses 16 through 19, we see that there's this, like Habakkuk has this peace. And I want to be really clear. It's not some flippant peace. It's not some kind of like, oh yeah, everything's okay. He says, my, bo- my body trembles, my lips quiver. There's rottenness entering into my bones. He's not got like a flippant peace. It's, a, it's an actual, like probably active decision for him to choose to rest in peace, even though he knows what's coming. The second part that we tend to forget is in our lives. We can look back at Scripture and wrestle with that, but the other one that I think we lose sight of so often is the fact that you are even called a co-heir with Christ is because of God and what He's done in His Spirit in your life. And we lose sight of how much of a big deal it is that we are saved. We lose sight of just how big of a deal it is that we can claim holiness and righteousness based on nothing we have done or deserve. We lose sight of God working in our lives. And I know this is true. I see this in my own life where I get in a circumstance or we're in COVID-19 trying to wrestle through this and I forget of all the ways that he has faithfully moved forward. One of the most simple ones for us right now is we're sitting outside of a building that a year ago almost that we started to be able to occupy. And we went into that going, there is no possible way that we can ever do this financially. And God did it. And now I'm complaining about being outside of the building as opposed to remembering how faithful he was to even have us have a space to do it. We lose sight of all the ways that God works in our life. We, we try to explain it away. and We try to say it's a coincidence. Or we try to think that we had something to do with it. We lose sight. This is why we lose our confidence. Is it a coincidence or is it a work of our sovereign God in our lives? That's the question you have to ask yourself. Are the current circumstances clouding your understanding of what he is capable of doing? Have you lost sight? See, Habakkuk's point is God did that. We didn't. All this threshing the nations and churning the waters, this is an illustration. This is pointing back to God's faithfulness to his nation in some of the darkest times in their history, like being brought out of slavery and having to do battle against nations that are far more powerful than they are. Do you believe that God can do it in your own life? I believe if you believed that, you would live life totally differently. There would be a peace and a confidence no matter how hard it got. You'd be reminded of God's faithfulness over and over and over again in his people and realize that these people in here aren't any more important than you. God loves you. He saved you. He's working for you, no matter how dark it is. In this book, as one scholar says it, he says, kind of looking at the whole narrative of Habakkuk, he says this. He says, Habakkuk moves from burden to blessing, from wonder and worry to worship, from restlessness to rest, from a massive problem to God's person, from a complaint to consolation, and from confusion to confidence. Beloved, only our great God and Savior can supernaturally turn sighing into singing. So we must, like Habakkuk, take time to wait before him in prayer and listen to his word. It is always worth the wait. The band's going to come up and we're going to sing, but we're going to end our service differently. And since you guys came and are outside, you got to deal with it. 
we're going to do, instead of just ending in prayer, we're going to actually speak God's word over us. But we're going to do it together. We're going to do it collectively. We're going to proclaim it together. And here's why. We're going to do Psalm 136. You guys do not have to turn there. We're going to read it out loud, and I kind of clumped a couple sections together, but if you want to read along, you're welcome to. But this is going to be a me speak and you speak with me. So it's not going to be a stand there and do it on your own. And what we're going to do is we're going to speak this psalm. And one of the lines that said over and over again in this Psalm 136 is it's recounting God's history is, for his steadfast love endures forever. And it's, it's interesting because it's so repetitive and we're so not used to this. But the reason why the repetition was there is to impress truth upon the hearts of the people. Repetition in the scriptures is there so that it's, it's that important. It's important for us to be pressed in on the truth. And so what we're going to do is we're going to speak this psalm over each other. We're going to declare the things of God's goodness. And all this psalm is doing is talking about all the things that God has done and will do and is doing. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to say the first line, and then you guys are all together collectively going to say, for a steadfast love endures forever. So if you would, would you please stand with me while we do this? Don't let these be words you read, but instead let it be facts you believe from the core of who you are. Don't just listen to what God does and assume it's only for someone else. But remember, it's for you as his child today. Psalm 136 is where this comes from. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, the moon and stars to rule over the night. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. For his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and outstretched arm. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it. For his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. For his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage to Israel, his servant. For his steadfast love endures forever. Now hear this part. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. For his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our enemies. For his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. For his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.